Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. We're very happy to welcome you here for this weekend. Um, I want to start by, by asking about this film, about the, the um, incredible impact and reaction to Bonnie and Clyde. Um, I really think it's one of, the, one of the very few, maybe two or three most influential American films in terms of how it, how it changed everything, how it changed the course of cinema of the past, I would say of the past 30 years. Um, it was, when it opened, it, it got an, drew an incredibly um, mixed and often violent reaction. Um, it was attacked quite viciously at first in the New York Times, for example, which called it, Bosley Crowther was then the film critic, and he called it callous and callow, and was ashamed that the film was representing us in the Montreal Film Festival. Um, there was an incredible exchange of letters back and forth, pro and con, in the, in the New York Times. Um, the Times actually um, turned, you know, changed their tone towards the film. Vincent Canby had a very favorable interview and profile of the film later that year. And by the end of the year, this was a movie that um, was one of the major box office hits. It made $22 million. It was Warner Brothers' biggest box office hit of the decade. It, as we said, got 10 Academy Award nominations. So could you just talk a little bit about what, what the immediate impact was when this movie came out? Well, that, that, that was essentially it. It was Bosley Crowther. <laughs> uh, it was, you know, the major critic of the New York Times. And, and, and what we know about critics is that they uh, tend around the country to slavishly follow whatever the New York Times has to say. So that uh, an enormous number of critics lined right up behind Bosley Crowther <laughs> and decided that this was... Uh, irresponsible violence on the... Now, it all, it all started, actually, because Parsley Crowther had had a campaign going before this film opened about violence in American films. Uh, I, I don't know what he was referring to, but, but <laughs> there, there may have been uh, some violent films. Uh, what happened was that he was up at the Montreal Film Festival where we opened this film, uh, simply covering the festival, not, not as a critic. And uh, after seeing this film, he was he's somebody I knew because he had, uh, I guess part of the reason for his great uh, outrage at me was that he had hailed me after the miracle worker as the, the new hope of the American cinema, I guess. <laughs> Now I was the disappointed prodigal son, you see. So uh, he turned around and, and just uh, said he was going to be absolutely merciless about the film, and he was. What happened as a result of that was that we got advertising we could never have afforded. <laughs> because he would write one story, and then people would write letters, and then he would respond to that, to those letters, and then pretty soon we had ourselves you know, $100,000 worth of advertising in the New York Times, pro and con, mostly pro. And that's what he couldn't quite figure out. So that at the end of the year, not only were we the biggest grossing film in Warner Brothers history, or, or in that decade, but Bosley Crowther was out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> of course, there had been violent films before that, but what was really um, amazing and kind of groundbreaking about this movie was, was the tone. Um, 
the fact that it had um, two incredibly charismatic stars that there was um, mixed in with this incredibly graphic um, and impactful violence um, was an upbeat tone. There was banjo music. There was um, it was a movie that we clearly enjoyed. So the ending, there's an incredible jump in tones in the ending. That we well, it's it's more than that. I think uh, I think it's a romantic film for mm -hmm. one thing, uh, and and that's very appealing about it. That I now that I see it in retrospect, and, uh, the other, of course, is the major. Uh, Part of the film, which we could never have predicted, was that this was in 60, it, it came out in 68, I guess, about the end of 67, mm -hmm. and, and came out on, onto the American public at, in 68. 68 was a very tough year in terms of the social and, and cultural upheaval in the country, and so the identification with these two people was enormous, and it, it, it was, uh, it spread it was it was true in, in all of Western Europe as well. Uh, when when Warren and I flew over to London to think we were going to go over there to publicize the film, we went walking down the street and there was everybody dressed as Bonnie and Clyde. It was absolutely bizarre, and um, and it was that way all through Western Europe, through the Scandinavian countries and uh, France. It was an absolutely, but, but all of that was unpredictable. I, somebody then came up to me afterward and said, could you do another film now where you change the fashions? You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the reports from London about this film compared, it, compared the mood and the euphoria of, the, of um, how the Bonnie and Clyde feel when they're committing their murders to, to, um, to a pot party, kind of the high experience by the counterculture at <laughs> a pot party. And one of the letters in the New York Times um, said that this was not a movie for adults, that it was really for kids. So how much, I mean, obviously this, this, um, there was something that hooked into the counterculture movement at the time. Yeah, so. it did. It really did. And I, I don't know, I mean, all those, all those <laughs> kind of reference points are kind of nutty. You know? <laughs> I mean, the movie spoke to the audience. It was clear. It would have made uh, probably double that much money if... Uh, if Warners had had any faith in it, but they didn't. They, they, when we showed it to them, uh, hmm. the literal expression of their opinion was, this is a piece of shit. <laughs> Warner Brothers the next year produced uh, the Green Berets. So. <laughs> um, well, I want to talk, there was, there was an incredible um, group of people, of creative talent involved with this film, and um, one of the most important um, was the producer, Warren Beatty. This was the first movie that um, he. Th this was a movie that really made him a huge star, and um, he had worked for you just a few years before, and Mickey won, and now he produced this movie, and um, showed an incredible genius, I think, in, in who we brought together, and also in, um, in in understanding what his image. I mean, the kind of impact that he would true. have. Could I you talk about about Warren Beatty as a producer? Oh, as a producer, I think I think Warren is probably the smartest person in in all of Hollywood. I think he's the most uh, knowledgeable producer that there is. Uh, no nobody can ha hold a candle to him. He's uh, he's better informed about films and how they're made, how they're distributed, and why than probably any combination of studio heads that you could put together. He's made it his practice to, to know that much about film. 
so it was a, it was a very felicitous arrangement. I, I, I had made a film with him before called Mickey One, where we we co we we jointly produced it. That is, my my company had three quarters of that picture, and he had one quarter. On Bonnie and Clyde, he had three quarters, and I had one quarter. <laughs> I would, about which I'm not complaining for one second. He, he produced a, an extraordinary film here. Um, let me think. What else? About the people in it? The well, people some, in it. Well, also some of the other people you worked with. I mean, Rob, Robert Benton, David Newman. Uh, yeah, well, Benton and Newman had been working on this script for a number of years. Uh, um, it had gone to Truffaut at one point. It had gone to Godard at another point. Godard said he was going to shoot it in about two weeks. <laughs> in uh, Texas, and I think that that sent Benton and Newman screaming out of there. Uh, I don't know what happened with uh, Truffaut, mm -hmm. um, but something. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, mean, I, I think that Truffaut rewrote the script. That's really what it mm -hmm. is, into a Truffaut script, and, and, and Benton and Newman didn't like that. So Warren bought the original script from uh, Benton and Newman and then came to me about it, and that was it. Yeah. And, and what could you tell us about how the, the very unique, um, and at that time, very groundbreaking tone of the film came about? I mean, how much of that was in the script? How much of it developed? Some of it was in the script. Some of it we, 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 uh, de we developed along the way. At a certain point in the making of the film, a, a very good screenwriter named Robert Town came into it. Uh, but but uh, not, not making a really major change in the film at all. The, 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 the uh, special scene that Town wrote was the scene where they go back to visit Bonnie's mother and family. That, and that scene about you, you live three miles down the road from us and you won't live long. <laughs> uh, that, was, that was a significant scene of, of uh, Town's. Um, <clears throat> Warren had worked briefly with Gene Hackman in Lilith. <clears throat> very tiny part, and uh, I, I, uh, I didn't know Gene Hackman as a film actor. I'd seen him on Broadway, it turned out, in a comedy, any Wednesday. But I, hadn't, I, I just simply hadn't put the two images together. Hmm. But uh, Warren showed me those five minutes, and that, uh, that absolutely persuaded me. And then uh, Estelle, I knew, and just, I just had one of those instincts that she had to play that part. She hmm. just had to. So the only part we had any difference about was was Bonnie, hmm. and um, Warren was concerned that he want, he he want, he felt he needed an, a big movie star with him. So he talked about uh, Jane Fonda. He talked about um, Natalie Wood. At a certain point, we decided that that Tuesday Weld could do it, and I I, I took the script to I sent it to her. And uh, she turned it down, <laughs> and it, uh, that was the end of her marriage because it was her husband's advice to not do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the ways are filled with all kinds of uh, <laughs> adventures around a movie. You know, it's such it's such big time stuff. You know that when a when a picture like this takes off as it did. It changed lives, it changed careers, it changed everything in, in, uh, with the people involved. It, it, it made Dunaway a star overnight, literally. And she'd been in one, one 
one movie before that, and and in the New York theater, which is where I had seen her in uh, After the Fall, Arthur Miller's play After the Fall. Hmm. Uh, you talk a bit about the use, the way you use music here, because music becomes very important in this film. And Little Big Man has a similar kind of counterpoint use of music, and um, and of course Alice's Restaurant is ba is a film that you based on a song and, and was inspired yeah. by a song. Yeah, as, as Arlo said to me, "Hey, man, we made the first music video." <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, you know the, the the history of of movie music, and, and there, there there are all kinds of cases that can be made. There, are there were many, many superb composers who wrote beautiful music, Bernard Herrmann certainly, and many others. And that music was in support of the, the emotion of the film and the, the tonality of the film. Um, well, let, me, let me go back just a little ways technically. One of the problems in the early days of, of sound films was that the recordings were bouncing all over the place. I mean, the levels, the quality of the recording. If you recorded on this corner of the stage in the studio, you got one kind of sound. You recorded over here, you got another kind of sound. So with all of these disparate tonalities in the, in the dialogue sound, what they had was from beginning to end music. And I mean, that, that's, if you look at any of the films of the 30s and 40s, it's without stop. Now we get into the 50s, and really it was not, no, it was even later than that. It was, it was in the early 60s when really electronic equipment took an enormous jump, and people were able to record much better, and then post-production was, was able to filter out and balance out sound in a, in a remarkable way. So all the while that, that, that there had been sort of wall-to-wall -wall music in films, now it, it began to be selective. Um, I, I remember when I, when I uh, made The Miracle Worker, which was in 61, I believe, 61, we could uh, not, um, uh, what we call mix at the end of a picture, we could not put together sound and music and, and sound effects except a full reel at a time, so that if you, and the full reel is about 10 minutes. So that if you went along in a reel trying to mix it and got it just right, except at 9 minutes and 30 seconds somebody screwed up and turned up a knob wrong, it meant you had to go back and do it all over again. It was, it was, it was like a six or eight week project just to mix 9 or 10 reels. So that as for instance, when you have a scene like the scene in the middle of Bonnie and Clyde where C.W. Moss is in the car and they go in to rob the bank and then he sees a parking place <laughs> and he goes, I'll park, the I can really drive, I can park, so he parks the car. Well, the, the idea of that, of course, is to disarm the audience, set you into a kind of panic, start with a comic scene. Out come Bonnie and Clyde, they can't find the car, then they find the car, now they try to get C.W. Morse to pull out of this parking place, and all the while the music is going right up against it. It's not going, hey, be scared, hey, what are we going to do, how do we get out of here? Not at all, it's going, you know, flat out, <laughs> flattened scrubs. And the idea was to build this into a kind of comic scene 
that disarms you, and away they go, and boom, a guy comes out of the bank, jumps on the running board, and Warren, in panic, turns and shoots. And that's the first murder, and that begins the rest of their lives, as, as, as Bonnie and Clyde. So, <clears throat> that's a long answer to, to a <laughs> question about music, but, but, but for instance in Little Big Man, which some of you will see tomorrow, it's a film about the American Indian, but, uh, but essentially what I ended up doing was using blues, a, a, a one voice, one guitar blues singer player, uh, on the, on the assumption that any genuinely ethnic sound is is perfectly valid, and there's no more fabulous sound in the world than blues. And I thought that that was a wonderful sound for the quote American Indian. So instead of dum 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 dum. <laughs> Which we, you know, which Warner's and every other studio out there had used to death for the films. Anyway, it was interesting when that picture came out. Nobody, no critic, wrote about the music. I think they were scared to touch it by that point. <laughs> you talk about complexity, about how you use the music to add complexity, and I want to talk about how you do that with performances with the actors. Um, I read an old interview with you where you talked about John Ford and said that. You didn't think he was a, as good a director as he was. You didn't think he was a great director of actors because you always knew how the types were going to act. The, the cowboy would act a certain way. The barkeeper would act a certain way. And there's an incredible nuance and surprise in the performances we see here. Yeah, I, I, I should, ha however, have, <laughs> have amended that to say that when he did The Quiet Man, he got some beautiful performances. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, Ford philosophically... Um, was working from a quite different perspective about the American hero than I was. Uh, and he, consequently, in support of that, that very affirmative feeling he had about the, quote, American hero, he had a bunch of cohorts, all of whom had very distinct functions, you know, one of whom had to get too drunk and, and spoil things and, and then get punched in the jaw and, you know, I mean, that's, that's what, what Ward Bond was born for. <laughs> and, uh, and Victor McLaughlin before him, you know. That, that and the Un-American Activities Committee. Um, the, the, so the configuration around, that, around his, his hero, and, and with all due respect to John Wayne, a acting is not one of his strong suits. Huh? I mean, he's, he's, he's got a lot of other characteristics, but I wouldn't, out of a lineup of American actors, pick him as a particularly distinguished character. Um, so, and that, that's what I meant about Ford. I meant, yeah. I meant that, that he, you knew the types, and he had, the, he had that little team of actors, and inevitably they would all be there. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't remember the names of all of them, but, but I remember <laughs> them. Ward Bond and those guys, mm -hmm. and, and uh, so that—that's all I meant. Yeah. Ford was a brilliant filmmaker. He's absolutely brilliant, but but he wasn't concerned about complexity in his actors. He wanted rather simplicity in his actors. He was working with a kind of two-dimensional uh, personalities in a multi-dimensional film. 
uh, there's a way that um, the 70s is, and the late 60s in cinema um, is so different than today. Um, and that, that you were able to make films that, that offered very complex views of American society. And it, it, um, when I was thinking of what the other influential films were that really changed Hollywood, um, not all of them in a positive way, the, one, the other one, aside from Bonnie and Clyde, that I thought of was Star Wars as a movie that um, in the mid-70s um, set the tone, I think, for what was going to come afterwards. And one thing it did was kind of lower the like, uh, intelligence age level of the audience, but I, I think it might have made, made it hard um, when everything you had to make after that was a huge blockbuster to make films um, that were challenging and complex. Oh, I think unquestionably that, that changed yeah. the nature of American films. I don't think they've recovered, <laughs> really, as, as of yet. I think they may be on their way up again, and I, there's some, still some vital signs left in the, in the <laughs> patient. But uh, I don't think the, the film, as, as an interesting and complex and, and even literate medium, uh, recovered from, from the, that period of special effects, mm -hmm. uh, the Lucas Spielberg uh, onslaught. All that happened is they got very rich. <laughs> I, I want to... Um let people, I want to talk about some of your other films, but uh, before we jump off of Bonnie and Claude, I want to see if people in the audience have questions. So, right down here. Why would a producer go to Truffaut or Godard for something that's a slice of the Americana? Which this picture was. It's an odd choice. Well, yeah, yeah, I guess it was. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't Warren, it wasn't Beatty who went to them. Uh, it was, it was the, the scriptwriters. I guess they, they identified uh, themselves with, as, as they, they thought of it, as sort of nouvelle vague writers, you know, a part of the new, new wave of, of, of film. And indeed, that, that is inherent in the script, that there is a new tonality, a new address to film, to the, to, to the organization of film. But on the other hand, that they, they would have both been tragic errors in... in in, in, in my perspective. On the other hand, uh, Godard, after this film came out, speaking to a bunch of uh, cinema buffs out in Hollywood, said, all right, now let's go out and make Bonnie and Clyde the right way. <laughs> so uh, his arrogance is impenetrable. <laughs> in the context of the depression, it's either the murder of his hero or you have people taking life, the state, and you have the criminal, and there isn't much to choose be, uh, on a moral level between them. Sure. It didn't have a national jurisdiction. Jurisdiction in the case of, of criminals like this was limited to the state. So that if they commit, as, as Clyde says, when she gives him the chance to say how he would live life over again, he says, I'd live in one state and work in the other. Well, what happened was, and this is, this is a, an example of the venality and, and devilishness of J. Edgar Hoover, uh, what he did was he took this group of Midwestern bank robbers, small, very small potatoes at best in terms of criminality, and elevated them to the level of 
public enemy number one, number two, number three. And that was the case with Bonnie and Clyde, with Pretty Boy Floyd, with John Dillinger, with, with one after another. And the purpose of that was that he could, he could knock those guys off. That, and by doing so, he could elevate his agency from being a specifically small agency into a national police force, which in effect he did. It was on the backs of these rather small-time bucolic criminals that he elevated the FBI. They even had, at, at a certain point, a comic book put out in which the exploits of these terrible bandits were elevated to that level, and then the great big brave G-man came along and, and knocked them off. Well, that's the way it went. And, and we know from our own history that that is literally the case. To the, to the end of, of J. Edgar Hoover's entire life, he kept denying that there was a mafia in America. But there, there were these kinds of criminals. These criminals and communists were, were, the, were the targets of the FBI as he constructed it. So I was going to undo some of that. And what I, what I was really talking about was that these were bumpkins. They were really, they, all, all of these guys, Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde, uh, Pretty Boy Floyd, yeah, uh, yes, they were antisocial types, no question about it, they were killers, but they were more than anything, they were bumpkins in terms of reasoning. And their view was, well, the banks hold the mortgages, now the banks are foreclosing on us, so we, in order to get back at the banks, are going to go rob them. And that's where we started out at the very beginning in this film, with a bank that had already gone broke. <laughs> because it was, it, it was true. The banks were going broke out, out of a kind of foolishness on their own, which was there's no middle ground. If we hold the mortgage and you can't pay the mortgage, then we're going to shut you down. We're going to take your farm. And then what are we going to do with it? We're going to leave it there. And that's, it. that's literally what happened across America. And that was, that was all of it, the attitude of the Depression that was encapsulated in that, in that basic banking attitude, which was punitive, re re repressive, and more than anything, vengeful against people who couldn't pay. So these, these people sprang up all through the Midwest. Um, I Hi. <laughs> I'm missing your mustache. <laughs> Throughout the last 10 or 20 years of going to the movies, as I would see like the end of uh, The Wild Bunch or films not done so well, I'd say to myself, oh yeah, like, like Bonnie and Clyde, like bullet hits, all these bullet hits. I'm amazed now, seeing this film 25 years later, that there aren't that many bullet hits. And I'm looking, I think, at a lot of acting selling this death, not a lot of bullet hits. And Blessings on thee, my son. Yeah. <laughs> you talk about how you created that. Because in my mind, I thought I was going to see today clothing right. filled with bullet hits and wires and everything. And instead, I'm watching Faye Dunaway vibrate. I'm watching Warren roll there on the ground and all that. And could you talk about how that... Well, you, you know, it was, it was literally a, a misinterpretation of the film that set in motion all of this idea about the violence. I, 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 I went to see uh, Pulp Fiction last night, you know? 
Um, a nifty film, very good film. There's more blood in that, you know, from, from a woman overdosing than there is in this. Uh, it, it's, it's, um, what happened was that, that this misrepresentation of the film took place in Crowther's mind. Now, what we were doing was a much more, as I say, romantic film. It was a film intended to make up, and, and there's no question of, of the truth here. It is in no way a biographical film. It's no way is it the truth about Bonnie and Clyde. They were wretched people. But our people weren't wretched. And we were not, we were not trying to tell the story of Bonnie and Clyde. We were trying to say in 1967, look, there's something about a youthful love and a youthful rebellion that is very attractive. That's very attractive to us, the filmmakers. And that's what we were emphasizing. And that's why it's, it's rather lyrical, in point of fact, right before they die. They turn and look at each other, and those looks are extremely expressive. And, and uh, I'll tell you about those in a minute. Um, and, and, then, and then comes this death. Now, in, in point of actual historical fact, they did fire over 1,200 rounds at them. I mean, it was savage. It was beyond any, anything that anybody could ever think of as being uh, a way of killing somebody. It was a way of making mincemeat of them, literally. I didn't intend to do that in the film, and I wasn't, I wasn't prepared to do that. I was prepared to do something which was to say, look, this story, in a way, sort of took place and, and it has a kind of legendary quality. And so my first instinct was that it should be balletic, that it should resemble something of a ballet, and that they move into legend and out of reality, quote, out of reality into legend by the change of environment, by the change of context. And, and that's why I ganged together all of these four cameras all running at different speeds, photographing exactly the same action, was to be able to <coughs> move in, inside the same action, but with a different speed each, for each camera. Um, the thing about, about the look of, of one to the other, it was one of those testy periods in the course of the movie where, they, where, where Warren and, and Faye were not getting along terribly well. And uh, in order to get those looks, I played the other part off screen. So Faye is looking at me, and then I turned around and shot Warren, and he's looking at me. <laughs> and then you put them all together, and then you get that lyrical, beautiful. <laughs> that, that, that was, that's literally what happened. Yeah. <laughs> well, they did, actually, and they loved it. They, they were not. It was not that they didn't love it. You know, actors get testy, and particularly before a shoot like this, they, they were anxious, because there's no question about it. I mean, it's frightening. What they do is they put... You, do you know how they make these things? It's, it's a little, little metal dish into which they put a small charge of, of, of gunpowder. There's a wire running to it, then on top of that, there's a little sack, plastic sack of blood, and then the whole thing is wrapped in a condom. 
<laughs> and now it's strapped to your body. I mean, pasted to your body. Well, in some instances here, they had, you know, close to a hundred of those on them. It doesn't always show because they're they're moving, and they're moving away from camera at a certain point. But each one of those had to be rigged in, uh, constantly because we never knew what we were going to be able to see in slow, slow, slow motion. And so they had a bundle of very fine wires running up their legs that was about that wide. That's, that's terrifying, as you can imagine. You've got one face, you've got one body, and one career based on that, and God knows what's going to go wrong here. And, and things did go wrong, not, not, not things to be frightened of, fortunately, but things, <laughs> the, the very, the, uh, I digress briefly again. Uh, the, the reason that we had, uh, with four slow motion cameras, what happens is, with the most slow motion cameras, it's that they eat up film very fast. In other words, you achieve slow motion by exposing a greater number of frames per second. Do you, is, is that clear? So that there was a sizable amount of film. Well, it was, it was so much, and it, it all had to be done so, so carefully, because we would run out of film. I mean, it was only going to last about that long. So you couldn't say, okay, roll them, camera, action, yeah, you know. There was no way to do that. So what we did was we took that when Warren bit into the pair, everything went. And that was the, the cue for everybody, all the departments, to go on all the special effects and the blood and the cameras are rolling and sound and all of that. Well, the, it took us all of one morning to load that thing up and it was just before lunch and Warren was nervous about it. And we got to that point and everybody was there and they were all, the set was ready to go and Warren bit into the pair and then he just stood there. And, of course, everything went off. I mean, a piece of his head blew off. Uh, a bullet hits all over him. He didn't roll. He didn't fall down. He, Faye was over there dying. Uh, <laughs> death. But Warren never moved. <laughs> he just stood there with a shit-eating grin on his face. <laughs> I mean, uh, and looked down at these, these things coming off him. So that was, that was one of the adventures. It took four days to shoot that. We got a shot in the morning, shot in the afternoon. Shot in the morning, shot in the afternoon. That was it. One of the like, beautifully stylized scenes is when um, they go to see Bonnie's mother, and that's done in slow motion. And this, um, well, it's only one, one tiny little piece of slow motion in it. Yeah, but more the, the, fo the kind of the fog foggy look. The faintly the, foggy look, yeah. yeah. You just talk about how that came about? Yeah, well, that came about... Uh, um, I, I, God, every story has to have a long antecedent. <laughs> I had made a picture called The Chase out there, and it was, a, it was a nightmare. It was a bloody nightmare. I ran into a cameraman who was used to the old ways. And the old ways meant that you lit and lit and lit mercilessly, and then you stopped down to nothing, you know, and then you got these beautiful images, except that the actors were tired, everybody was exhausted, the cameraman was having the time of his life, but, <laughs> you know, the actors were, 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 you know, hours and hours on the set waiting to go. And that's just, that was ridiculous. So, 
when I came to make this, I said to Bernie Guffey, Bernie, I'm, you know, we're going to go. We're going to go. I'm going to go with available light. I'm going to go the way it goes. Film is so much faster now. The lenses are faster. Everything works so much better. Let's just go. Let's take a chance. And if we, you know, if we're marginal, we'll come back and do it over again. But, but I, I, I want to... Well, that worked for a while. And, uh, and, and so when we came to this family reunion scene, I said, you know, it should be, there should just be the air of, a, of an old photograph that's, that's just beginning to turn. He said, got it. And he sent somebody into town and got a piece of screen, just like a screen, piece out of a screen door, except not shiny. It was, it was, it was dull. And that's it. He put that in the camera. And that, that's all that, that we changed in that scene. And, and that and the fact that, that we, we foreshadow the slow motion with that little boy on the mm -hmm. hill just, just rolling down. And then that was it. Well, <clears throat> so we're going along. And now we come to the scene where, where um, Estelle Parsons is, is, has, is blinded, you know, and she, it's a scene in the headlights. And she's got this, eyes, my eyes. And I look up and, you know, it looks wonderful in just the headlights. And there's Bernie putting up a light over there and a light over here. And I said, hey, Bernie, no, no. And he said, I need it, I need it, I need it. And I said, no, I mean, I, I'm, no, I want it just the way it looks in the headlights. Whether we see her or not, whether she's a, well, we, it got to be very testy, that little moment, and, and, and unfortunately, I didn't know this, but he had ulcers, and he, he started to bleed, and he went into the hospital for three days uh, after that little encounter. But uh, one of the things that I have to tell you about <laughs> that is related to that, because, because, because they are related, those of you who have seen The Miracle Worker, Know, uh, the, know the story. Now, I had a Cuban cameraman named Ernie Caparos on that picture, and we're shooting in black and white. And Ernie is, you know, veteran of, of I don't know how many hundred films. And so we were going along. About the third week of the movie, we did the last scene of the movie, which is a very emotional, terribly upsetting scene. And Annie pulls Helen out of the house, they go to the pump, she's been spelling into her hand, and all of a sudden, it hits. And it's an, an electrifying moment. It was electrifying on the stage for 200 performances. It's, but, and, and, and there we are shooting, and there the, there's a whole crew is standing around crying. You know, these great big hulks, you know, <laughs> sobbing like a bunch of babies. Well, Caparos, could tell from that that we were on to something. He didn't know the play. He had never gone to see the play. He didn't pay any attention to it. But he saw the effect of that, and all of a sudden, he could see Academy Award. <laughs> and we go on shooting now the other part of the film, and I say, let's go, let's go, Ernie. Come on, let's go. He says, I have to light the shadows. I said, you're what? He said, do you look a Rembrandt? He, he likes shadows. We have one of these discussions <laughs> in the middle of the picture. Well, 
that, that's what happens, is they get an in, in, intimation of immortality. And <laughs> peculiarly enough, with Bernie Guffey, he won the Academy Award. Ernie, er, Ernie got nominated, actually. But <laughs> what it does to the director is it eats up your life, because you, you know, we, the one thing, one of the big things about directing a film that's never out of your head is, I've got so much time and so much money, and this is where I'm going to spend it, and I've got to move on. I've got to get this by 11 o'clock because i got this ahead of me. And, you, you know, that's going in your head like the world's biggest taxi meter. And you can't, you can't allow any of that to go, to go awry. You're, you're in charge of this great big thing that, that costs that much. So when suddenly somebody waxes poetic, and some, that somebody is your cinematographer, you got to take him over into the bushes and say, you know, enough of that crap. Come on, buddy. Let, <laughs> let's, let's go do it. Were you able to uh, have in your mind all the setups for a given scene before you went to a set? No, I don't, I don't actually do that. I, I don't, uh, except with the last scene, the big shooting scene. That, that was one... I, I planned beforehand, but ordinarily I don't plan a scene at all until we're on the set, until the actors are really playing the scene. Because there are so many wonderful discoveries that actors make uh, that, that I find uh, the whole idea of a director coming in and sort of say, now you be there and then on this line you move over here and I'll have the camera over there. And <clears throat> All of that, which I did for years in live television, because there was no no alternative to that. We we had no tape. We were simply going out on the air live, and so we had to do that. Uh, when I, I find that uh, as an, an offensive idea, and, and one that that doesn't allow the actors the, the the wonderful luxury of discovery that they very often make in in Bonnie and Clyde. That wonderful moment where where Faye says to C. W. Moss. Uh, we rob banks. And he turns and looks at her and starts to laugh, and then walks back toward the, you know, looks back at her again, keeps laughing. All of that was just an actor's moment, and I just let the camera run. And I, I was just, I was set up for, for that. But it had come about in a rehearsal, and, and it, it's constantly the case that, that, that the actors invent. And it's far better, I think, to, to follow their inventive lead with the, with the visualization, because the visualization is as much a, a, a part of the dramatic motion of a scene as, as, as anything. Where, where, you, where the camera is at a given moment, when a scene moves to a, to a degree of dramatic intensity, is enormously important. And I find that the actors' instincts for those are impeccable. So I follow their lead. Um, in terms of your visual style, um, Robert Altman's another director who does ensemble work like you do. But one thing that you do differently in your visual style is that there's um, a real immediacy. You, you use close-ups a lot more and point-of-view shots, where yeah. you'll show us what the character sees. You'll take the time to do that. Um, I wonder if you could just um, talk about that, because that's something that seems a little bit different than um, what you would do as a theater director, obviously, since you're yeah, theater. So you're, if you could just talk well, about that visual stuff. One of the problems in the theater is that you're close-up starved, you know? Right. One of the thrills about getting into film was that, that, that there was the close-up. And uh, 
I, I guess I'm different from a lot of those guys, uh, from Bob Altman, certainly because because of my theater experience, I I, I have no no sort of uh, discomfort handling a large crowd scene or a large scene. That's relatively easy for me. It's that when I want to take you out of that and into the in, the emotion or the intensity of it, I tend to go up close. Bob tends to stay back and let the scene act itself out in a brilliant way. I mean, there's there's no no better filmmaker that I know of, in, uh, and and uh, and it's it's a terrific way of telling a story. John Ford did the same thing very often, very often, told the intense moment of of a film in a rather loose shot. Uh, those of us who came out of live TV tend not to do that. Lumet. Uh, well, I don't know. I can't make that generalization because Frank Schaffner did do that. <laughs> uh, George Roy Hill falls in between somewhere. Frankenheimer is more on my my kind of style. So, <laughs> but that's that's where the, I think the genesis of it was. The actress in the, the scene that plays your mother mm -hmm. um, was she when I first see her, I think. She's somebody found down there in Texas or something. But then she delivers that line. It's just incredible, uh, whatever, you know. Yeah. You live three miles from me, honey, and you won't live long. Could <laughs> um, you talk about who she was and directing her to get that line up? She was a school teacher from Texas who was standing, <laughs> standing on the side while we were shooting a scene. And, 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 and my, my associate, Jean Lasco, came up to me and said, She looks just like Faye. And I kept looking at her, and indeed she did. So I went over to her and I started talking to her. And she had this wonderful Texas accent. She was, she was a school teacher. And, um, but she didn't have any other way of, of talking. I mean, she just had to talk that way, which was just fine with me. And so I didn't even really rehearse her. I just waited until the moment we were ready to shoot and we shot. And she just talked. <laughs> And that was it. Um, there's amazing performances uh, by Pat Quinn and James Broderick in Alice's Restaurant, and they—I don't—you can't really tell if they're professional or not professional. I mean, they, they seem like incredibly natural performances, and I assume that film has a lot of non-non-actors mixed in. Yeah, Arlo. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Pat Quinn in particular is. Fantastic. Well, Pat Quinn is yeah. a wonderful actress. Yeah. She's a wonderful actress. She 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 didn't pursue her career, but. She started out as a, as, as, as a secretary mm -hmm. to us, to Fred Cohen and me. And uh, then uh, she, she allowed one day as how she was really an actress. And then mm -hmm. it turned out she was a very fine actress. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I brought her out to California to be in the chase. Mm -hmm. And then she met Brando. <laughs> uh, what's your feeling now about Alice's Restaurant, which was your next film after Bonnie and Clyde, and which um, actually holds up incredibly well because it's, an incre it's really one of the best re documents of that period. How does your feeling about seeing it now change from when it was made? Well, I, 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 I remember now that that, mo that more than, more than uh, other films, did have a lot of non-actors in it. The police chief was the same police chief who who busted Arlo and <laughs> and Arlo and a number of people in the film were were the real people. Quote. Uh, 
Uh, oh, I look back on it with a certain pride, actually, because I, I had a feeling that that whole period had to be documented in some way. And there were a lot of attempts. Uh, I, I, I can't even begin to remember the titles of them, but every studio in, in the country was making a counterculture hippie film, and none of them, none of them survived except Alice's. That's the only one that I think has lasted with any kind of uh, vividness. It's a, it's a film I'm quite proud of. Mm -hmm. uh, I, it just, it occurred to me when, when a friend of Arlo's brought over the record right after it was issued and said, hey, have you, you know, because we live in Stockbridge, which is where, where the whole thing happened. I mean, it, it couldn't have been more fortuitous. It was literally right outside our door, practically. So uh, I heard the record and I thought, gee, that's someone there. And then the next night we went to a dinner party, much older crowd, and they played the record again. And I thought, if these people are listening to it and the kids are listening to it, there's, there's something here. And of course it, there was. It was enormous wit and, and a very uh, uh, salient and sharp perception about the nature of, of morality as it was being used by authoritative figures. And uh, I, I, so I find it uh, a picture I enjoy a lot. With Penn and Teller? Yeah. We met and, uh, and I, I, I had, yeah, we just, we just met and started talking and I, I thought, gee, these guys are, are in some way remarkable. Uh, and, and they are. I don't think the film is, is, is any good, but that's, that's my fault. That, I, I blew it. I was, I was trying to make a pop film about, uh, I don't know, middle-class values, I guess, but, but, but doing it uh, with, with magicians is the dumbest thing in the world because, uh, you know, there's no magic. And everybody knows after, after a whole decade of, of Spielberg and Lucas, you know, not, nothing is magical. It, it's all either a movie trick, so it doesn't have the effect that Penn and Teller have in the theater, where they do these wonderful things. Or, I mean, while, while Teller is in a tank, drowning apparently, while Penn goes off on a rap about uh, some, some social event or political event, because he, he was in the middle of a card trick that involves Teller going into this tank and coming up with the right card, and, there, and right before your eyes, Teller is in this tank dying, you think, and Penn is rapping about the, uh, the outcome of the election and going on and on and on. And you think, my God, what about that guy in the tank? Oh, God. And, and then, of course, the end of the trick is he's, he's got the, the card inside of his mask. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, they're brilliant in the theater. <laughs> it didn't work on, on film. It didn't work. Happens. <laughs> Well, that's what I, that's a self-description, I think, of, of me. I, I mean, I, I think I am. Uh, and consequently, I'm a very disappointed voter. <laughs> <laughs> well, every time now I turn on the television today, and there was Newt Gingrich every place you looked. <laughs> you come upon Gene Wilder. 
Oh, I'd seen that. Gene Wilder is a wonderful actor, and he's been around for, he's been in, in the theater as a very serious actor. And, 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 and I had the, I, I, I'm very involved with the actor's studio. In fact, at the moment, I'm the president of it. And uh, we, we, had a, we had a unit there called the Playwright and Director's Unit, and, and uh, the guy who wrote The Great White Hope, how, this, how his name could go out of my head at this point is, Anyway, he, he wrote a little playlet that Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel did that was as funny as anything I'd ever seen in my life. But here was Wilder. He couldn't get arrested as a comic actor, you know? But I, from having seen that scene, I knew that he was perfect for it. So it was just, there was no question in my mind when I read the script. I mean, it was one of the, that, the casting on that picture was, was really one of those blessings where everybody sort of jumped out with the exception of Hackman because I didn't know him in that, in that light. But C.W. Um, Moss, uh, <laughs> Michael Pollard, and, uh, and all these other folks were people I knew and knew well. And Denver Pyle, the sheriff, had been in Left-Handed Gun. So uh, <clears throat> it, was, it was just one of those joyful pictures in that respect. <laughs> Say that Little Good Man was the um, ending of the cowboy and Indian movies as we knew them in the fifties and sixties. Yes, to a certain extent, I did because because it took me six years to get that movie made uh, because because of the inherent prejudice in Hollywood against a movie that was apparently sympathetic to the Indians, and it was perceived that way by a lot of the production offices at the studios, who then in their sly little way, uh, way over-budgeted the picture so that the head of the studio who might want to make it was scared off from making it. And in point of fact, uh, when, we, when we made it, six years after the fact, we came in $3 million under the, the, the budgeted figure because the, the figure was so inflated. But, but <coughs> a Hollywood... To, to be absolutely kind is a really fascist city. <laughs> and uh, they, they, they got one way of looking at history and it's their way, uh, the, the way they wrote history. And that, that was, so that was a very strong thing. And then lo and behold, years later along comes Dances with Wolves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you can make that after, after Little Big Man already exists, but... Uh, they forgot. That's it. They <laughs> forgot. I'm working on a couple of pictures. Um, I did a play on Broadway years ago that, that I've always been delighted with called Sly Fox. It was a play uh, based on Volpone with George C. Scott and Hector Elizondo. And, uh, and it, was, it was just, it's one of the funniest plays, I think, that, that's been around. It's a farce, but it's, a, it's a, written by Larry Gelbart. And uh, one of the, one of the most remarkable people around. And so uh, I ran into Harvey Weinstein the other day, who's one of the Miramax brothers, and he said, hey, you want to make uh, Sly Fox? I said, yeah. And he said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one, one, one thing on my plate. The other is a, is a film that, that I'm going to make for a cable company, but it, it's, a, it's a very good film. 
is set in South Africa about the conditions in a, in a, in a prison while, while Mandela was still a prisoner in the midst of apartheid and then after when Mandela was released and, and the change in the environment. How did you uh, like working with Jackie Gleason? It was terrible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Jackie Gleason is a, is a strange, was a strange man. He was a strange man. Uh, talented without, without question. When he was doing what he can do, and what he can do, he can do brilliantly, you know, and away we go, and, uh, and all that stuff. While he tries to play a character, as he was trying to do in Sly Fox, uh, this was the road company of Sly Fox, where he was playing the same part that George C. Scott had played. Well, there was just no question about it. It was, it was a no-go no, 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 no from the word go. Uh, it just didn't work. We couldn't. But, but uh, we sold tickets like crazy. The only trouble was that he had a, I think, a quintuple bypass. Is that possible? In, <laughs> in Chicago, the second city they played in. After, so that we lost all, that, all those bookings and all that money. But um, he was a strange fellow. <laughs> okay. Um, I, actually, we're going to have to stop. I thought we were going to stop with current projects, but instead we're going to have to end on Jackie Gleason. I want to um, thank Arthur Penn for coming out and being with us this weekend. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.